0: Heavenly Father, be gracious to us and bless us and cause your face to shine upon us. Show us your way as it may be known on the earth and show your salvation, Father, among all the nations and let us be a part of that. Let us be the means by which people would come to praise you, that all people would come to praise you. And let us, Father, go to the nations so they may be glad and sing for joy. Knowing you are the judge of the peoples and you judge with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. and Let the people, Father, praise you and let all people praise you because the earth you have given us yields its produce and that you bless us in that way. Father, bless us that all the ends of the earth may fear you. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Well, today, folks, we finally get to that moment we've been waiting for now for several weeks, several months, maybe. That moment when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. And if you think you've been anticipating this moment, well, how do you think he felt after having waited so long to bring this to his brothers? He spent 21 years separated from them from the time they sent him down into Egypt. And in that entire time, you have to imagine he was waiting for the chance to embrace them again, to tell them he had forgiven them, to become a family again. And then, out of the blue, one day, ten of his brothers march into his very presence, asking for food. I wonder if maybe for a split second he considered revealing himself to them right then and there, after so long a wait. But he didn't. He stopped, he reconsidered, and he acted judiciously. He must have understood that the famine and all the circumstances of the famine was the way God was fulfilling the dream he had given him, and that through this decided advantage that he had, this knowledge of his brothers and his knowledge of the future... He could use this to God's advantage. And he took that remarkable encounter and he built a plan out of it, as we've been studying, to test their hearts, letting God work through the circumstances of the famine and his position in Egypt, all of that to create an opportunity for his brothers to repent. And through repentance comes reconciliation. So it's been nearly a year now that Joseph has been moving through this plan. It's been almost a year And in that time, we've seen the test run its course. The brothers have been tested twice concerning their feelings toward their own siblings. And then there was the issue of Jacob and his willingness to relinquish that beloved son of Rachel and allow Benjamin to enter harm's way again. And then there was Judah. If you haven't noticed already, Judah has taken a particularly important role in this testing process. And that makes sense because I want you to remember how much of a role Judah played in the problems of this family to begin with. It was Judah, after all, in chapter 38... That gave rise to the need for Israel to leave Canaan because of his fooling around with Canaanite women. And then, ironically, it was Judah who had the bright idea to send Joseph down into Egypt, which became the mechanism for bringing them into exile out of the land. So Judah's been at the heart of this from the very beginning. And so you see already God has placed a special emphasis on Judah in the reconciliation plan as well. He's had to lead the family in the discussions. And then last time I was here, we noticed he was the one who took that initiative to advocate on behalf of his brother Benjamin and to confess to Joseph the dishonesty and the and the unfairness that their dealings have had for Jacob, for their father, that they have failed to honor their father. Now he is trying to make up for it. So that's where we left off now at this climactic moment where all of that testing now has produced the fruit it was supposed to repentant hearts desiring reconciliation reversing the sins of the past. And so now comes the time for Joseph to come clean and reveal his identity. Look in chapter 45, verses 1 through 4. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Well, in verse one, Joseph is described as no longer being able to control himself. The Hebrew word for control is it's actually a fact and it literally is restrained or held back control. But it means he's reached this point where he can no longer play the charade. He has come now to a to a point where disclosing his true identity is his only option. And that makes sense because Judas confession gives him the opportunity for that. The whole idea was Joseph would conceal who he was until such time as he could know the brother's true hearts. Once that can be known, there's no point in concealing his identity any longer. It's not a game. It had a purpose. And that purpose now has been met. So in response to the confession, Joseph does three things. First, he orders all the Egyptians to leave him alone, to go out of the room so that only Joseph and his brothers remain in the room. Secondly, Joseph weeps. He, he cries out and he does so so loudly that we're told the Egyptians who had been ordered to leave the room could still hear the weeping from outside the room. In fact, even the rest of Pharaoh's household could hear it. So that means that this place that Joseph is living in is directly next to the Pharaoh's court. But yet it also tells us how loudly this weeping took place. So even though the Egyptians were not privy to the moment. They were not partners in this conversation. They had no experience in the revealing itself, yet they could still know it was happening. They understood there was something happening. Finally, third thing, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers truly. Now, remember, the brothers have always been aware of Joseph, the brother, of course, but everything they knew about him was wrong. They knew Joseph in the sense that they knew of who he was, but they had no concept of who he would become. So they thought their brother was dead, but they were wrong. He was alive. They thought that this ruler, this man who's standing before them as Pharaoh's counterpart, that this man was their enemy, but they were wrong. He was their brother. They thought that the prospect of Joseph ruling over them as the dreams had foretold was an unbearable joke, and they were wrong. It was to be their salvation. Then there's Joseph speaking those three words that they would never have imagined hearing. Not in that moment, certainly. I am Joseph. And before the brothers even have a chance to respond, Joseph adds this declarative statement at the end. Although in our Bibles, in English, it's phrased as a question. In verse 3, there's this statement, is my father still alive? But that truly is not a question. Not in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it literally reads, does my father yet live? But we know Joseph knows that Jacob is still alive. In fact, he just got through listening to Judah make a passionate plea to take Benjamin home to Jacob. Otherwise, Jacob would die, he said. So Joseph knows Jacob is alive. He just heard that. What he said in Hebrew is essentially, I am Joseph and my father lives too. That would be a more literal way to translate it, given what he means. I am Joseph and my father lives too. Joseph spoke those words in Hebrew. This is the first time they've heard this man speak to them in their own language. Up till now, we've been told Joseph's been speaking through an interpreter to hide his identity. They never thought for a moment that he could understand a, a thing of Hebrew. But now that he's sent all of the Egyptians out of the room, if he's to speak to them and they're to understand him, he has to speak to them in Hebrew, which only makes sense. So now, considering all those details, look at the reaction of the brothers. We're told they are dismayed. That is classic biblical understatement. And you see this often in the scriptures, right? The word for dismayed, bahau in in Hebrew, literally means terrified. It means terrified. What would we give if we could have been there in this moment to see the expression on these boys' faces? That's one of those moments, there's about five or six I can think of off the top of my head, where I'd say if I could go back in time, that's one of those moments. And just to watch, what was the expression? The brothers heard the words, but by their reaction, it seems clear they didn't understand them. It didn't resonate. It didn't make sense. And you can imagine some of the things that were going on in their minds as they heard the words. I am your brother, Joseph. This man is an Egyptian prime minister, yet he suddenly speaks in Hebrew. He knows the name of our missing brother, but we never told him the name that our missing brother was Joseph. We've never mentioned that word before to him. And yet he said, I am Joseph. And he says he's our brother, but our brother's dead, isn't he? And he looks nothing like Joseph. Nothing is computing. The eyes and the ears don't match at this point. Joseph recognizes that. So he begins to speak even more tenderly to his brothers. In verse 4, he says, first, come close to me. In Hebrew, that's an even more tender phrase. It literally means, come near to me, I pray. Like you might speak to a child. And he says, I want you to come near because we presume they'll have a better chance to see him and understand him. Remember, these brothers would have likely been looking down at the ground almost entirely whenever they came into Joseph's presence. You always avoided eye contact with someone of this prominence. It was a sign of respect not to look them in the eye, not to consider them your equal, in other words. So up until this moment, they're catching very little of his face. They're sort of glimpsing at it. They they just see the traditional Egyptian makeup. It doesn't appear to be anyone unique to them. It's just another Egyptian. Now he says, come near, look at me. I am Joseph, that brother, the one you sold into Egypt, the one you sold into slavery. Now that last part, that last part would have knocked them for a loop. That's the part where now they don't understand Anything, in all likelihood, the brothers have probably told no one about what they did to Joseph. We know they didn't tell Jacob. There's likelihood they never told anyone else in their family. They certainly never told Joseph himself as he stood in this role in Egypt. And yet now they hear Joseph repeating back to them the very sins which they had committed against him. Joseph knew their hearts in a way they could never have expected in this moment. When someone confronts us, with secret knowledge about our past mistakes, that's usually not a good moment for us. It's usually a prelude for some kind of retribution or justice in some form, isn't it? Isn't that our expectation? When you're confronted by a parent, if you're a younger person, or a supervisor at work, or an agent of the law exposes some mistake in your past, don't you expect that the next thing that happens is not going to be in your favor? And often it isn't. And for good reason, maybe. But in this case... It's the opposite. Joseph has no interest in retribution. His whole intent in revealing himself is to put his brothers at ease. He had heard the confession. He wants reconciliation. He has no beef against these boys. But in their minds, they're trying to reconcile the shock of who he is, the reality of all that's happened up to this point. And now in there is this fear of what comes next. What does a man in that position do to people like us who sold him into slavery? Well, to reassure the brothers, Joseph gives his well-known words of comfort and wisdom in the next passage, verse 5 through 8. He says, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you, to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So rather than being angry with his brothers, look at what Joseph does. He's worried for them. He's worried for them. That they might be grieved or they might be angry with themselves. He acknowledges, you were the ones who sold me into slavery, yes. But it was actually God who placed me here, making them just instruments for God's plan. We know that's true because we remember the words God spoke to Abraham many years earlier in Genesis when he told him that there was going to be a period of time in which Abraham's descendants would live in Egypt. That they would be sent there, but then that they would also be brought out. And so we learned in chapter 38 why that that was because of Judah's sin. We needed to separate Israel from the influence of the Canaanites. Let's get them out of that place. Let's get them into somewhere where they can incubate safely. But God still needed a method to do it. So the brothers' rejection of Joseph and their eventual decision to rid themselves of Joseph were events ordained by God's providence. In verse 6, Joseph connects that with the famine they've been experiencing. The famine, he says, was part of God's plan to drive you to me, into Egypt. But, he says, someone in Israel needed to go ahead of you. If God had merely prompted the circumstances of the famine, which drove the family down there, but had not put Joseph in advance in the position Joseph was in, then there would have been no conceivable way that the people of Israel would have been welcomed and settled into the land in the way that they are. They would have been like any other foreigner who came in, bought and went home. God wanted someone to go ahead, someone, he says in verse seven, who would preserve a remnant in the earth, keeping Israel alive for a great deliverance that would follow in a future day. So Joseph is the key to God's plan to get that foothold, that beachhead in Egypt that would allow Israel to have a place to live. Someone who would blaze the path. Someone who would suffer at the hands of his brothers and experience shame and experience misery. Someone who would be then worthy to overcome those things, rise to a position of power where he can then ensure that they would have acceptance in their land. A man who could preserve that remnant during a trial of famine. Someone who would one day welcome Israel into his kingdom. Verse 8, Joseph says, I'm that guy. I'm the one God sent ahead of you. My brothers didn't put me here. God put me here. Though they thought they were doing the very thing they wanted. Instead, they were doing God's bidding. They just didn't know it. And in their sin, they're still judged for it in the way God brought them back together through a terrible trial that they've had to endure. Can we learn something from this experience? I certainly hope so. And the very least of it would be this. God never excuses our sin, but he'll harness it as he needs to to move us forward in a plan that he has put together since the foundations of the earth. The question becomes our attitude toward God and toward his will when it's playing out. Joseph is remarkable for a lot of reasons, but I would argue that this moment in the story of Joseph is that pinnacle of his life that leaves him as a testimony of faithfulness because it would have been within his power to do many things to these brothers. He chose none of the things that you and I might want to do or he may have wanted to do. And the reason was this. It was not misguided love for his brothers, some kind of magnanimous gift that he was offering them out of the goodness of his heart. I'm just going to overlook your sin for now because you know and I know that when people act like that to us in the back of our minds and in the back of their minds, there's still that wonder, when will that ever come back to bite me? When will they ever come back and say, yeah, I forgave you, but you still did it, right? You remember that, right? That holding over our head, That we were wrong and they know it. And now we owe them for their generosity in not taking retribution. You know the feeling, right? The point is, in Joseph's case, his reasoning for relinquishing any sense of retribution or justice to his brothers had nothing to do with himself. Not at all. It was entirely because of his faith in God. Because he knew this was God's plan, not his. How can you hold the sin of these brothers against them if you're Joseph? When you yourself know God made it happen. That doesn't excuse their sin, but it takes Joseph's concern and sets it aside. If Joseph had a problem with the way the plan played out, he doesn't bring it to his brothers. He brings it to the Lord. And in that relationship, he has settled in his heart that this is the good and right thing God needed done. And his brothers were just an instrument. As a believer, our sin explains virtually nothing in our lives. Virtually nothing. We are all sinners. And sin has consequences, yes. But, folks, if we truly saw the results of our sin play out as it should, none of us could stand. All of us who have faith in Christ and the forgiveness of sin that it brings us are seeing the vast majority of consequences that should be ours set aside. And we don't even recognize it half the time. The enemy and his sinful work, our sins, is harnessed. And God is putting it all to work for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8:28 reminds us. So in our passage this morning, you see that the Lord will work for the good of the Jewish people. And he's doing so here. He will do so again in a future day. And that brings us to one of the most powerful pictures in the story of Joseph. We've been talking about this for weeks. And this is really the culmination of it. Let me take you back to a few things that we have learned in past weeks regarding pictures of Christ and of Israel and of tribulation. Remember, we've learned Joseph is a picture of Jesus. In his life, his brothers picture the rest of Israel. We remember that Israel rejected Jesus just as his brothers sold Joseph into slavery. We remember that after Jesus died, he humbly spent three days in the lower parts of the earth fulfilling the scriptures, just as Joseph was sent into a period of slavery and prison. Later, Jesus rose to glorious ascension to the right hand of the Father. Later, Joseph rises to be to the right hand of Pharaoh. And then at an appointed time, The Lord, we are told, will bring a great stress, a great trial on the earth, a time called tribulation. And he does so to cause Israel to come seeking for relief. And God creates, in the case of Joseph, a worldwide famine. In the case of the world to come, the tribulation. That's what we've studied up till this point. That's the way the picture developed. And now we have this moment of the revealing of Joseph to his brothers. In Genesis 45, you see the outcome of the trial. The fruit of God's test in these brothers hearts they repent and they confess to Joseph and as a result Joseph reveals himself to them Those events picture exactly what will happen to Israel in the last days of tribulation In that future day there will be a time of great stress of trial of tribulation supernatural disasters persecution by a man that goes by the name antichrist and as a result of all of those things Israel will be brought to a point of repentance and confession. Let me read just a few things from the Old Testament to highlight this event. In Zechariah, Zechariah 13, chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, you read this. Speaking of that future day, it says, It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it, speaking of Israel, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. That's what Zechariah says follows at the very end of tribulation. You can read more about that extraordinary moment in another chapter in Zechariah, Zechariah 12, in which you read this in three verses, 12, 7 through 9. This is speaking of the moment at the end of tribulation When the nation of Israel is at the end of that period of testing and trial, they're under maximum stress. The Antichrist and his armies are about to conquer Jerusalem and destroy the nation. And in that moment, look at the Lord does. Verse 7. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Israel will not be magnified over Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God and the angel of the Lord before them. In that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So that's the moment God begins to show himself. As the nation is feeling the pressure of the Antichrist coming against them, the trial at its height. Notice it says they are tested in Zechariah 13. Then the Lord, which says, will save Israel, saving the nation from that destruction. Much like the brothers in Joseph's house, They are sensing they don't have much longer, and they need rescue. But did you notice in Zechariah 12, it says that the rescue begins with Judah. Judah's the first among the brothers who will see that rescue. The Lord's work will start there, just as the confession of Israel began with Judah standing before Joseph and making his confession first. Then the next stage of the process will take place. Repentance. Look at Zechariah 12, 10. The Lord says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. This is a dramatic moment. This is when the Lord reveals himself to Israel, just as Joseph did to his brothers. You have to imagine the scene. All of Israel encamped of what's left of Israel on the earth, encamped in Jerusalem under stress from the Antichrist. And in that moment, when the dark is darkest, God pours out his spirit on the people of Israel. And it says, as a result, they all look upon the Messiah, the one they pierced, and they mourn for him. What are they mourning about? They're doing or will do exactly what Joseph was concerned about his brothers doing. They will suddenly have a supernatural awareness given to them by the Spirit that that man that their forefathers crucified thousands of years earlier, that Jesus of Nazareth, was actually their Messiah after all. And it will hit them like a ton of bricks. For all they've heard from their ancestors, from all they've been told to believe about Jesus, they find out, no, he's not dead, he's alive. No, he's not our enemy, he's our friend. No, he's not a Gentile God. He's our brother. And yet at the same time, they hear we killed him. And the first thought that must have run through their minds or will run through their minds on this future day is we lost our chance. But what they will learn is, no, what they meant for harm, God meant for good. And he is now about to bring that result back upon them in the best possible way. Not as a source of retribution, not to hold them accountable, but to bless them as a result. Isaiah records what they will say in Isaiah 64, verse 5. He says, you meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. And shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy rag and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us. Sound familiar? You have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the powers of our iniquities. But now, O Lord. You are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter and all of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our precious things have become a ruin. Will you, listen to this, will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? You notice references there to restraining and hiding of faces, an exact parallel back to what Joseph pictures in his story. But we know the answer to those questions, don't we? The answer is, no, he will not restrain. No, he will not hide forever. No, he will not afflict them beyond measure. He has brought them to the point of repentance, and now the work of God in that is done. And so the Lord will reveal himself in his second coming. Let's read one last passage out of Zechariah. Here's the moment when the Lord brings Israel to a full knowledge of who he is. Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 11. Then it says, The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move toward the north and the other half toward the south. You will flee by the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come. And all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night. But it will come about that in the evening time there will be light. And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them toward the eastern sea and the other half toward the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in that day the Lord will be the only one. And his name the only one. That is the future for Israel when the Lord will return after that period of testing when he will bless them. But do you notice it's for Israel? Those of you and I who are Gentiles who've come to faith now will be welcomed as well. We are those holy ones that come back with Christ. But as he comes back, as he reveals himself, who is he revealing himself to? To his brothers, to Israel. Now, will the world see it? Yes. It will be as if there is no light except the light of Christ piercing the darkness. That is our parallel to the fact that though the Egyptians were not the ones who received Joseph, were not the ones who were participating in his revelation in that room, it was only for Israel. Nevertheless, they knew something was happening. They were privy to something. Everyone will see the Lord's return, the scriptures say, though not everyone will profit from it. And that is what we saw in Joseph's story as well. There's a great deal more we could say about these events and the way Joseph's story reflects them. Time does not permit here. And I think for the most part, the point has been made. And if you had a greater interest, and I hope you do, Revelation would be the place I would send you. A study there will provide the details you're looking for. For today, though, it's enough to simply know the Lord has not forsaken Israel and that in the story of Joseph, we see a plan revealed long before the events that it foretold that remind us that God has always had The intent to test and then bring to repentance the nation of Israel from which he then can justly reveal himself and bless them as he has promised. That is, by the way, the gospel. What God is doing to Israel on a national level, he does to each individual person who he calls by faith into the family of God. He brings us to a point of repentance on our knees. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, we're told. From that position, he then can justly reveal himself to our hearts. We can know him for who he truly is. And in the knowledge of Christ comes the salvation he offers by faith. And as we respond in faith to that revelation of who Christ is, he does not bring the retribution that our sins justly deserve. He brings the mercy that he richly offers in Christ. That is the gospel. If he can do it for Israel, he can do it for each one of us and does. Heavenly Father, may the gospel be on our hearts this morning. As we see your faithfulness to your promises to Israel, a nation of people who have forsaken you, have disobeyed stubbornly for centuries and generations, Father, and yet you harbor no ill will because your promises bring mercy to triumph over justice and grace, Father, over wrath. We thank you that that is the God we serve. And we thank you, Father, that you have offered us that same opportunity in the same promises you made to Abraham, that through his seed all nations could be blessed. And we, Father, have been blessed to be counted among them. I pray, Father, that we would have that conviction in our hearts to know that if you can save us and save Israel, you can certainly save anyone. And though we may not see that salvation in the hearts of some we know, family, friends, neighbors, nevertheless, A period of testing may lead to a period of confession and revelation and salvation. Never let us give up hope to see that in those we yearn for it to to happen. Let us continue to be a light into that darkness. Let us continue to preach the gospel, for it is the power of salvation. Let us continue to be a church that holds these values high. I thank you, Father, that we continue together and may do so until you return with the word of God before us always. May we come back next week to continue in our study. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.